Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, November 13th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network as well as RisingApple.com. Well, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. And I'll start with this. I am already annoyed with the hot stove. Yes, I'm already annoyed with the hot stove. Can you stop with these? I know this is the new thing, and it's, I'm not blaming any one outlet on this, and I'm not criticizing anybody who's doing the graphics, but when you have a picture of a player and it says, breaking news, Rangers might be interested in signing Jacob deGrom or Mets should look into Justin Verlander or Jacob deGrom has let Rangers know he's interested in signing with them. Well, of course, when you negotiate your free agent and you go out there, that's what you do. I mean, I'm already annoyed. Like, I don't want to see any more like breaking news. Jacob deGrom may sign with another team. Chris Bassett may sign with another team. Well, yeah, that's what's called free agency. So already you've you've annoyed me. The free agency stupidity has already annoyed me. It's nowhere near like it used to be. I have to tell you. It used to be, and I hate to sound like this. I hate to put a damper on it, but I remember back in the days when, look, there was no Twitter. You would be just scrolling through Mets blog and forums looking for news. And I think back then it wasn't as much of a business as it is now to get clicks and to get people to click through. 
I don't know what it was. I was I clicked through something about Verlander and the Mets, and all it was was a speculative article. And and I get it. That's the business model when you're trying to make money and get advertisers. But somehow I think your work should stand on its own and, and just not for me. So anyway, I'm cranky. I'm already annoyed with the hot stove. But anyway, we have a really fun show for you today. An oldie but a goodie, a friend of the program. You guys know him, longtime journalist, longtime columnist for the New York Post uh, over at Ball Nine now, Kevin Kernan. Kevin also has his own podcast, and he's going to join me. We'll get into Hot Stove. We'll get into Mets player development hires, maybe a little bit Hall of Fame. There is a, you know, it's Hall of Fame season coming up, but the Veterans Committee and the contemporary ballot is out. No Keith Hernandez. I know that disappoints a lot, but... Plenty of Hall of Famers on that, so Kevin and I will talk about that. And and who better, a guy that really fancies himself as a, a connoisseur, a baseball connoisseur, you know, somebody that understands the game from uh, many levels, including from uh, a technical and coaching aspect. But you know, maybe Kevin could get a little bit into some of the rules changes and how that will impact how teams are built and whatnot. So we'll get into that. But. I am not necessarily going to get too deep into the free agency on this show. You know, last week we kicked off the end of the World Series. Edwin Diaz didn't even wait 30 seconds before he signed. We got into that. Turns out some of that money's deferred, so the Diaz contract has some financial ramifications that allow the Mets some flexibility out there. Now Nimmo's out there. Now DeGrom is out there. Now Bassett is out there. The whole damn bullpen outside of Diaz is out there. And as we talked about, you know, we've laid out this blueprint. I believe DeGrom and Nimmo need to go out there, see what's out there, see what their market value is, scratch that itch, so to speak, both for the first time. You know, DeGrom didn't become a free agent last time. Nimmo, this is his first time. Need to go out and, and vet this experience out. And, and does that mean that they may leave? Sure. There's always the chance that they like what they hear. Uh, anything could happen in free agency, especially when the agents take over. Uh, the Mets smartly have had dialogue and conversation with both of these players directly as well as their representation. So now the chess match begins. Uh, what I found interesting, and I think that this will play into uh, helping the Mets to a certain degree. It could hurt them, but also could help them. But uh, one of the things with the new CBA, and Jeff Passan tweeted this out earlier in the week, is that there are some harsher penalties for the top-paying teams versus some of the bottom-paying teams in this new collective bargain agreement. So, for example, the Mets, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Phillies, the Padres, they would have to give up if they sign a player who was given the qualifying offer. Now, the Mets only gave Bassett, DeGrom, and Nimmo the qualifying offer, right? So if the Dodgers want to sign those guys, just like the Mets— they have to give up a second round and a fifth round pick plus $1 million in international signing bonus. That really uh, reduces the market, takes some big paying teams out of the market for those players. Now, you might say, hey, Mike, you're always saying you're not a prospect hugger. I'm not, but I'll tell you, that's a pretty aggressive penalty for any organization, especially with the cost of players going up, the need more and more for organizations to complement their roster with homegrown inexpensive talent to give up a second and a fifth round pick plus a million dollars international signing bonus. That's a big deal. Now you have another tier 
Atlanta, the Cubs, the Astros, the Angels, the Giants, the Cardinals, uh, the Blue Jays give up a second-round pick plus 500K in international signing bonus. And then everybody else gives out a third-round pick. Those are the Orioles, the Oakland A's, the Pirates. So really, when it comes to a guy like Chris Bassett, you got to wonder how aggressive. Now, if you're, he's the final piece to your puzzle. You know, are you going to care about a second-round pick? Probably not. Half a million dollars international signing bonus? Probably not. But I'll tell you what. Uh, I think that this will play into the Mets' favor. Obviously, it's going to hurt them if they sign somebody. I mean, the Mets really actually in this uh, this time, they're really not in a position with that kind of penalty. And I'm gonna, it's kind of the theme of the show to go after uh, uh, anybody who has the qualifying offer because I don't think the Mets are in a position where they can give up a couple of draft picks plus international signing bonus money. Uh, it may it's probably a little bit too painful for them. So it will be interesting how these rules play into the offseason. Could play a little bit into the Mets' favor in keeping their free agents. Obviously could deter them from going after somebody at the top of the free agent class. Right now, I think we all know the blueprint is pretty simple. The Mets need to go after their free agents, continue to keep the, the core together, put off filling out the bullpen and whatnot until later in the offseason, and then round out the roster with some opportunistic value-driven signings. I think we all know about that. We've laid that out. I think of a lot of our big ideas, the Alcantara trade and the trade Turner signing, and, you know, obviously Shohai Otani, it's been put out there by Angels management that he's not going anywhere, especially with uh, potentially a new ownership group. So that's kind of where the early, I guess, thoughts of free agency are, are, are flowing with me. But I think the big news this week is interesting because it ties into something I've already said about the Mets and specifically about Billy Epler. And long-term, if Billy Epler is going to be a short-term solution here or a long-term solution here. Now, we all know that the Mets are built to win during Buck Showalter's three-year or so contract. And we all know that Steve Cohen taking over the team right now sees this asset, putting money into the organization, building up the ballpark, wants the team to compete and win, wants to blow away the stench of all the negativity from Madoff, all the negativity from the Wilpons, all the disappointments. He wants to blow that off by spending money, spending a lot of money. With the caveat, and he said this from the first day he took over, I could still remember that press conference when he first took over right after the 2020 season that he'd like to have a team that could build a sustainable winner by having, similar to the Dodgers, that was the blueprint, a sustainable infrastructure with the farm system where they could supplement their roster with inexpensive homegrown talent. Now, from the offensive side, the Mets were able to do a little of that this year. You saw Brett Beatty make his debut. You saw Francisco Alvarez make his debut. So, you know, Mark Vientos made his debut. Now, they didn't have... They had, I guess, Beatty and Vientos had a little bit more of an impact than Alvarez, but they had a couple of moments which make you say, okay, these guys, especially from the power department, could potentially help out on the offensive side. Not enough for you to say goodbye to Nimmo. Not enough for you to say, hey, you know, we could go out and rob Peter to pay Paul by trading a Jeff McNeil or something like that. No, not that. But enough to say that if Eduardo Escobar goes down for two weeks, you could fill in with some kind of competence. Uh, enough to make you wonder if the Mets can, you know, potentially get that power every day from the DH spot from Alvarez or maybe even part-time at catcher. You know, maybe Vientos and what have you. However, on the pitching side, 
that's far more problematic. Now, it wasn't as big of a deal this year because you had a couple of depth pieces, ironically, from the farm system in David Peterson and Tyler McGill. Now, Peterson has a bit of experience. He's been up and down since 2020. McGill came up late in the summer of 2021, but he's from the system. So they were able to navigate no Scherzer, no DeGrom. They had Trevor Williams from the Javier Baez trade, a depth piece that turned out to be a very valuable rotation swingman piece. And the only real uh, fill-in they had to have, I mean, there was no Jeremy Eikhoff nonsense this year. It was getting one start in Philadelphia in August, a game they wound up coming back and winning after he got clobbered early on from Jose Butu, who had a bad start and then pitched okay after that. So... Right now, probably not probably, he is the most ready, best pitcher out of the rotation. That Quite simply, that's not enough. So the only way you're going to get better as an organization is, yeah, drafting talent and procuring that talent, but you need to develop what you draft. You could go out and spend all you want in the international market. You could hit everything you think you could hit when you go out there and you go and draft. Tommy Tanis and his group does excellent work. Mets have had, an, uh, uh, they're one of the top teams in, in wins above replacement in homegrown talent in the league over the last you know eight to ten years. Those num- numbers were out there earlier this year. But from the pitching side, it is a concern. And, and even if you go, and, and guys, whether you like SMY's The Mets blog or not, you know, a good friend Joe DeMeo out there does great work uh, doing uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, recapping and organizing of of what the where the Mets farm system is all about. Uh, he just put out his offseason top twenty prospects, and the top seven are all offensive players. You don't get to a pitcher till eight, nine, and ten with Blade Tidwell, Dominic Hamill, Matt Allen, and all of those guys are one to two years minimum away from contributing. You know, even if you go further down, the Calvin Ziegler's, the Mike Vazels. The only player on this top 20 that you could even realistically say can fill in next year and maybe even compete for a back-in-the-rotation spot is Jose Buto, who we've seen. So that means you need a lot of work. You know, to make sure that the guys on this list, that they actually develop, because if they don't, even though you have other drafts coming, it's only going to push out the resources further and further. And quite honestly, we've talked about it. The Mets cannot continue to go out and pay $20 million for a closer and $25 million for mid-rotation help with potentially what will Bassett will cost. And let's face it, top of the rotation pitching, it's getting expensive. I mean, Max Scherzer at $40 million. Jacob DeGrom's going to get $40 million. I'm sure Justin Verlander will get somewhere in that market. It gets, even with a $300 million payroll, your resources get sucked up by your top four or five players really quickly. That's where the value equation comes into play. That's where, almost like an assembly line, you have to get some kind of uh, contributions from your bullpen cost-effective, from the back of the rotation, from your depth. You can't go out and sign all these veterans and, 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 and hope to stash them at AAA. They don't want to play down there. And you certainly can't um, expect the payroll to go, which it probably will north of 300 this year. But at what point does it, you know, even as Steve Cohen say, look, it's not worth me doing 350, 360, 370, 380 just to have this kind of uh, veteran presence. I need my farm system to do that. And ultimately, that's how and Billy Epler has said it. He said it a couple of weeks ago. He said it over and over again. They will use money to bridge the gap in the interim. Now, 
player development is something that will be a conversation because after the season was over, very quietly, it wasn't talked about a lot, they started to clear out and clean out the various levels of coaches and whatnot. Epler talked about it with John Heyman and Joel Sherman. You know, the Tim Tuffles of the world were pushed out, so on and so forth. Now, this week, they made what probably is their most significant hire when it comes to the player development since Billy Epler took over, and that is hiring Eric Jagers to be the director of pitching development. So why am I talking about this? Well, I have to tell you the truth. It's actually a hire that I'm concerned about, and I'll tell you why. And I'll preface it by saying I am not a player development uh, scout. I am not somebody who, you know, other than from a very amateur, opinion-based, radio-based level, could go and assess talent. You know, I'm an amateur. Nobody's paying me to, to, you know, build their farm system. I'm not going to pretend to be these guys from baseball perspectives, perspectives and so on and so forth that over the years got jobs and pretty big jobs in baseball really just giving an opinion. Now, they had some experience and whatnot in, I think, communicating a philosophy or so so forth, but they really weren't talent evaluators. They were more procurers of information, and they were able to get jobs based on the fact that they could push an idea center, a progressive idea center that baseball had never seen before. And now I think you're seeing it swing back where there are more players now, like Jagers, who's a former college athlete, that can disseminate more modern way of of thinking and coaching. And those are the guys that are looking to get into the game in a certain way, and those are the guys who are getting hired. Now, who is Eric Jagers? That's, you know, essentially, let's start there. So he's a college, you know, 27 years old, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Basically, uh, you know, went to the, I guess he was, um, you know, went to the University of Iowa, was a soft tosser, you know, and I'm basically giving you the Cliff Notes version. You could read about him. It doesn't really matter all the details at that point. But he was a soft tosser, had arm problems, you know, went to driveline. Now, driveline is Kyle Body, and driveline has been controversial because it's velocity-based, weight-based training. Basically, everybody who goes to driveline does their training based on, you know, getting their bodies up to throwing as hard as possible. Now, there's other aspects of driveline, and Trevor Bauer you know, who Jagers worked with, with uh, the Edgertronic camera and the Rapsodo and all this technology that helped pitchers see how their ball moved and spun and how they could build different pitches and whatnot. There's a lot of good that came out of this revolution. Yeah, we've talked about it on this show, the MVP machine, that book, how you could read it and really learn how guys like Justin Turner remade themselves or Trevor Bauer. I know that he's a dirty word because of some off the field stuff, but Trevor Bauer made himself into a Cy Young and a guy that uh, just a couple of years ago, we were looking just like Max Scherzer this past offseason for the Mets to team him with DeGrom and kind of be that 1A ace. And very fortuitously, it looks like the Mets lost out to the Dodgers on that and for a variety of reasons we don't need to get into today, you know, Bauer's not playing right now. So, but anyway, Jagers goes to driveline, uh, you know, remakes himself into a hard thrower, goes back to college, hurts himself again, and he's basically out. And then he goes into working a driveline. And since then, he's been with the Phillies organization, was an assistant pitching coach with the Reds. That's where the Mets hired him from. And I guess my problem here is this. It has nothing to do with, using any modern technology like Rapsodo, Edutronic cameras. And I think that there is 
probably uh, a world where weight-based velocity training works for certain athletes. And from what I read, Jagers is very smart. Uh, he's a hard worker. And this move was blessed or pushed primarily by Jeremy Hefner, who has done a really good job here. So let's be fair. I can't sit here and say, hey, I like Hefner. Hefner's done a good job with the staff. He's young. He's progressive. Uh, he's the kind of pitching coach. I mean, remember, the San Francisco Giants had Dave Rigetti as their pitching coach, I think, for like two decades. And you know what? If you could get a guy like Hefner in here that crafts and builds kind of a, a Mets pitching lab, more power to the Mets because they could use somebody like that. Always thought Rick Peterson was that kind of guy. You want to have a team philosophy and you want someone to spearhead that, and that appears to be Hefner. So if he is pushing one message up and down the line from the major league team down, that's good. Now, it does concern me a little bit that Jagers, according at least to his Twitter profile, is still working a driveline. I'm like, well, you work for the Mets now. Why are you working a driveline? And the other thing that concerns me about driveline is there's been some bad experience with other teams with driveline. Kyle Bodie, no longer with the Reds. From what I understand, he was a very difficult guy to work, work with. Now, if you go and look at the Phillies when Dombrowski took over and basically purged himself of all driveline in the organization, there was a reason for that. They did not like the culture that driveline brought about. And I find that very, very interesting because when you think about it, um, this is the exact culture that the Mets are bringing in. Well, let me read it. I'll read you a paragraph from an article. This is from a couple of years ago, right when Dombrowski took over, and it wrote and it read like this: The Phillies, a team executive said, discovered the driveline culture did not embody the kind of the kind the Phillies wanted in their farm system. Feedback was handed down and rarely traveled up. Perspectives that challenged driveline precepts were not considered valid and worse, not respected. The Phillies made dozens of staff changes, but important holdovers were asked to do things they weren't capable of doing or just did not want to do because they had contempt for the person telling them to do it, according to team sources. Grudges festered both ways. Now, you can look at that and say, hey, a lot of guys hold over, didn't like the whole driveline concept, weren't cooperating, and that's fair. But what I don't like, and I've seen this going all the way back to when I started many, many years ago, how modern thinking type of groupthink, especially when it's financially uh, advantageous for that group to get their principles ahead of other principles, uh, they tend to become somewhat of uh, a political party in a lot of ways. And they try to brainwash and and go out there from a standpoint of stumping for their way of, of doing things disregarding the fact that melding different ideas together with what was working before with along with stuff that's working now is ultimately the best brew for any organization. And I worry as I read this whole thing because the Phillies divested himself of all that. Now, they have Caleb Cotham, who was from the Reds organization, who Jagers worked with as their pitching coach now. So they really didn't completely. Let's put it that way. But I read that, and that was from a player development standpoint. And I hope, look, Eric Jagers, 27 years old, young guy, just because he's affiliated with Driveline doesn't mean he's going to be like that. It worries me a little bit that that's where the Phillies went. 
Because the last thing the Mets need right now is to try this whole driveline concept. Or more importantly, it shouldn't be a driveline hire. Driveline should be one tool in the tool belt of Jagers going out and developing pitching for the Mets organization. Shouldn't be like, hey, we're now a driveline organization. No, well, what are you, selling for driveline? Because if Jagers wants to be a salesperson for driveline, that's different. I'm not saying he is. I have no idea. What I'm saying is if he took some concepts from driveline and he could incorporate it into his philosophy, fine. But I have a hard time believing that an organization needs to be driveline or not driveline. And from that article about where the Phillies were, that sounds like those disciples of driveline, that's what they want. And that's dangerous. And that's always been the problem I've had with the analytics revolution is that they become kind of like a pseudo-political party and they totally have blinders as to some of the uh, opportunities within their thought process and their training uh, philosophies where maybe you can like, hey, not everything was invented the last 10 years. Not everything that went on for 100 years was bad. So when I look at this hire, I say to myself, this could go very badly for the Mets. And quite honestly, it could essentially get Billy Epler fired if it doesn't work out. If three years from now this thing's a mess and some of those names on that prospect list that I've mentioned are either hurt, never developed, you know, blew up in one way or another because of this assuming that Jagers just does driveline philosophy here and doesn't look at this more from a, a totality macro standpoint. Well, let me tell you, the Mets farm system being shambles, Cohen's going to say, hey, this isn't working, and they're not going to be able to sustain a $350 million payroll to be competitive and be at a championship level. Now, I'm hoping with guys like Buck in the organization and you know Hefner who has playing experience and recent playing experience – and, and under the tutelage of Buck, I'm hoping has, uh, you know, melded a more rounded philosophy on how to, you know, manage his staff. The point is, even if Hefner was inf- influential in hiring him, he's not down in Port St. Lucie working with all these pitchers. He's not, you know, he's in the meetings, I'm sure. But the job of the director of pitching development is to develop the pitchers and Hefner is dealing with the big league staff. Now, I'm sure Billy Epler, who does not come across, even though he's progressive, does not come across as one of these new age, like Matt Klintek was in Philadelphia, who is totally blinded by anything uh, that's not a certain philosophy. I don't think Billy Epler is like that, but you're handing over the organization, or it feels like you're handing over the organization to driveline. And there comes a lot of downside on that. Read up about it. Kyle Boddy, you know, weight-based training, velocity-based training, has been known to create a lot of arm injuries. I mean, look, this guy, this guy Jagers is preaching the gospel of a philosophy that he used that got him hurt. So he never made it. So he went, he was a soft tosser, went to driveline, got velocity, went back into the to the uh, collegiate career, and he got hurt. So yeah, you threw harder, but you didn't pitch. And I've seen enough enough of uh you know caveman baseball out there to know that just velocity is just not this the only way to go you've got to have a repertoire you got to have a got to know how to pitch think back to an old name from the Mets past Rick Reed there's a guy that probably threw 88 miles an hour but his location was impeccable and he got guys out and he got guys out at a pretty high level 
because his location was impeccable. Sometimes he might not have been able to break a pane of glass with his fastball, but he was able to get guys out because of location. And he was one of the better pitchers on that late 90s Bobby Valentine Mets staffs. Now, even Scott Boris, who super agent, uses all sorts of tools in his uh, you know, facilities and labs that the, the Boris Corp has, has come out this week and talked about maybe we're trying to jam a round peg in a square hole with analytics where, and I'll quote, he feels, um, uh, uh, let me read it, you know, that we're constantly seeing players talk about the fact that the focus on standards given by the team are different than what the players utilize to arrive in the major leagues. Boris feels he's no longer achieving the standard teams want, and teams want change from the very platform that the very player used to arrive in the major leagues. Essentially saying, here's player A, They've been somewhat successful, but if you become and follow this, you'll become better. It's almost a round peg in a square hole. But because that's the analytics or the driveline or whatever philosophy you want to talk about, whether it be on offense or pitching, they're going to stick to it. It's almost like one zero, one zero, like a computer. And that's not what sports is all about. That's not what pitching is all about. So. I color me skeptical about Eric Jagers, color me skeptical about driveline. I hope I'm wrong. And I'll leave you with this before we get to Kevin Kernan, because I, 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 a lot of people think, oh, Mike, you're going to rail against this all year. You're going to you want it to fail because you want to be right. I hope I'm wrong. Just like I wished I was wrong and Dom Smith would have hit 35 home runs this year as the DH. Just like I, I hope to be wrong about a lot of different things. I wanted to be wrong about Miguel Castro. I was right. I, this one, I have conflicted feelings. I'm not going to say I'm 100% worried, but the whole driveline connection completely worries me. Um, he comes with a better reputation than a Kyle Body did when he went to Cincinnati, who, by the way, the Mets were thinking about hiring when Brody Van Wagenen was uh, the general manager. And I'm not saying just because the whole driveline thing failed in Philadelphia. Remember, their pitching coach is a disciple, so it's not like their driveline divested and Caleb Cotham who's the pitching coach for the Phillies uh, you know Jagers worked with him in Cincinnati so that's just my thoughts this is a big big part of the puzzle here for the New York Mets player development is huge and if they botch this it will set the organization back at least five years and I will tell you more than likely they botch the next three years of player development, they are going to have to rebuild within that span. I cannot see a scenario where if they have a barren farm system in three years, similar to where they are now, where they cannot rely on any pitching. I mean, their offense, actually, I shouldn't say it's barren. That's not fair. It's a little top-heavy. But if that prospect 7-20 to 20 doesn't start to produce even competent middle relievers back into the rotation arms, like Peterson, like McGill, they're going to have a problem on their hands. They're not going to be able to compete and win. They're not going to be able to have the depth to compete and win. They're going to go back to what they were in 07, 08, to a certain degree in 06 as a very top-heavy 8 to 10 players on the roster team. Those teams typically win mid to high 80s. They tease you a little bit with their potential, but they never get to the top. Similar to the 2019 Mets as well, a team that maybe you're, if you're listening a little younger, maybe you're a little bit more familiar with. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer, Ball Nine, has his own podcast. What does he think of all this? What are his thoughts on Mets free agency? 
is Jacob deGrom going to stay or not? Kevin's pretty good. He goes down. He's a guy that doesn't just look at numbers, but he knows people and he knows players. And he's been around the Mets organization. He's been around New York sports. Let's get his thoughts and more right after this. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Mets history is a big part of the Talking Mets podcast. Do you want to know when the decline of the 1980s Mets started? Picture day. Bob Clappish of the record joined me on the show to reminisce how the most innocent of activities shed light on how bad things had become around the 80s Mets. You know, Keith was, was his best years at that point were behind him, and Daryl had become, had become the star of the team. Um, and I think Keith resented that, and I think Daryl resented Keith's trying to continue to try to, you know, uh, wield that influence. There was great tension between those two. And if you remember, that culminated in that fight on photo day in spring training in 1989, when both players start throwing punches at each other in full view of the New York press and, and, and New York press cameras. TV stations were there for photo day, which used to be a big thing. You covered live. And those two went at it. Were, they're just beating the shit out of each other. On TV, live TV, it was a it was Jay Horowitz's nightmare. So yeah, there was a great deal of tension because the passing of the baton was not smooth. And you also have to remember that that, that this great golden era at Shea never happened. Uh, you know, '86 had come and gone, and uh, that was it. There were no more championships. '88 was a tremendous disappointment because that was a really good team. And nothing came of it. The loose of the Dodgers, a team they, they should have beaten. They should have, they dominated all all year, and they suddenly lose to them. And that's really when it, the team sort of went over the cliff. And that the decline began began in '89 in earnest. Keith and and Carter both were suddenly old men, and they just lost their way. And by '92, you know, they really had for all the money they that Frank Cashin and Al Harrison had spent to to sort of recreate the image of the '86 Mets. I mean. That was all sunk costs, bad decisions all around. And suddenly this great, lovable team became this horrible club. And hence the, the book that uh, Harper and I co-wrote, The Worst Team Money Could Buy. 92 was an, was an abysmal failure. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. 
We're back and joining me, you guys all know him, America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan. He's joining us as uh, the hot stove is kicking off. And uh, Kevin, welcome to the program. And uh, World Series about a week old, and we're already getting into the hot stove. And you're uh, on your podcast, Coaching Kernan, and also on Ball 9, you talk a lot about player development. Well, the Mets jumped into the player development pool this week. And for me, at least, hired somebody that could be somewhat concerning from driveline, Eric Jagers. So welcome to the program, and uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, let's go, Mike. Anything you want to do? Um, I don't know much about Eric Jager. I don't know him personally. And you know me, I'm completely honest. He's a driveline guy. So driveline, uh, some people like it. A lot of people don't like it. And uh, the Mets, um, I think in some ways the Mets are grassman at straws. But uh, fire away. Anything you want to know. Um, So a lot of with driveline, and I guess my concern, even not knowing much about Jager's, is that it's, weight-based training, a velocity-based training. And in today's game, and you talked a little bit about with starting pitchers not going long, the amount of injuries, can you tie in a little bit of how pitchers are being trained? Not only not to go long, but also the way they're going about building their bodies up and using just velocity and weight and uh, obviously getting hurt. Yeah, great question. You know, I like being on your show, obviously. Um, you know what you're talking about. I just talked about it uh, today in a column. I have a column up on Ball 9. And, again, just so people don't know, I mean, you know, some people may have lost touch since since I'm no longer with the post. Um, but I'm actually more active, writing better stuff, longer stuff, more detailed stuff at Ball 9. And, um the baseball community itself, Mike, I'm just going to do a little self-promotion here only because I want to let people know uh, the information they're getting from me. It, you know, I'm still locked in with people more so than so many writers who are kissing ass and just trying to be, be friends with GMs and assistant GMs. I, I don't need to be friends with anybody. Um, I got plenty of friends. And actually, with Ball 9, my friend's quotient has, has skyrocketed. <laughs> Baseball people, I can't, I can't begin to tell you, managers, coaches, scouts, and most of them, is, it's off the record because they always tell me, I, I can't like this because, you know, when I post them on Twitter and Facebook and everything else, and plus ball9.com, B-A-L-L-N-I-N-E.com, um, they, can't, they can't say it out in public, but they, they know I'm right over the target. I've been over the target. All you have to do is watch any baseball now and you see what's going on. I can tell you this. The, to me, Dusty Baker and the Astros, and I wrote about this today, um, you know, why uh, James Click was dumped and uh, how the new owner, uh, I mean, how Jim Crane is the new George Steinbrenner, the new boss. Uh, he, he trusts his baseball people. He's got a lot of baseball people around him, including Reggie Jackson. And... Um, he trusted basically. What have the Astros done differently than other teams? They've pushed their starters. They got their starters going length. They got their starters throwing fastballs, but also spinning the ball. And they got their starters. And here's the biggest difference, getting back to your question. They have their starters commanding the ball, commanding the baseball. Uh, they're putting it where they want to put it. That, they, they won because of their pitching. I don't hear any driveline stuff out of the Astros. I hear them working on – going back to Brent Strom, you know, knew him well. I was there today. Uh, um, uh, Dusty got hired. 
and basically met the press the first day and I was standing out there on the field with him. We're talking and I said, wait, what are you going to do to get these guys to believe in a 70 year, 70 year old man? And Dusty's 70, but he acts like he's still, you know, 30 uh, or maybe younger. And he said, I'm getting them to trust me. I believe in relationships and that's what he's done. You saw what happened there. Those, the, those, those pitchers, the, the position players, they all trust Dusty. Dusty did so much for that team. He got away from the analytics, and they have analytics there. You know, they're, they're, the analytics drove them to all the crazy things they did. Um, and analytics aren't bad to an extent, but you can't be a slave to analytics. And most most organizations have become slaves to analytics. And and basically, the Astros played baseball. Their pitchers pitched. Dusty fought like hell, fought like hell to have, have Jeremy Payne get back second because all the nerds want to put their – you know they want to put the Aaron Judge's second, which makes no sense to me. They left. Uh, they want. You know they want to move Alvarez up to second, put Pena somewhere else. His on base percentage isn't good enough. They all look at numbers. They don't look at heart and reality. And meanwhile, Pena becomes ALCS MVP and World Series MVP. He's on base every time Alvarez is a home run. So it's not just a solo shot. So. So Dusty believes in that kind of stuff. I believe in that kind of stuff. Baseball, I think the pendulum with Bochy going to the Rangers is swinging back a little bit slightly in favor of baseball people. I have no problem with hiring driveline people. Let's see the proof is in the pudding. Um, um, but I, I do have my concerns. And especially, especially, I mean, how are the Mets going to win, Mike? They were going to win by Scherzer and DeGrom. Yep, and Scherzer and Degrom both laid an egg in, in the postseason. Uh, Mets ERA in the postseason. I know it was short series, but it was like ten. I mean five. They were tenth in in postseason ERA during the season. They were seventh with three point five seven, and they were tenth with relievers three point five five. But as the season wore on, you saw it started starting to slip away. So they have to do something. But um, uh, I don't know if this is the answer. We'll see. It'll make a good spring training story. All the Gaga writers will go, you know, they'll go crazy. Or they'll, 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 they're like little cats chasing the little laser, you know. <laughs> they, they, they go, you know, they put their paws out and, and you, they write a whole story about something that makes no sense at all. But to them, it's the greatest thing in the world uh, because this guy's, you know, throwing harder. We saw what, what throwing harder did. And it's one of my problems with DeGrom. And I, I tell Jake right to his face. You know, Jake, I think you've gotten worse since you ramped up the speed. I mean, it looks good. You know, we'll hear about all the 100-mile-per-hour pitches. But I like the Jake DeGrom that was, you know, 96 locating and wasn't putting a strain on his lats and everything else. Um, so this could be worse. I don't think DeGrom will be with the Mets, but this could be worse for the Mets in the long run. And maybe it will work out. If it works out, more power to him. Cohen's got all the money in the world. He's going to hire all the people he wants. So I, you know, I, I'm wondering, I don't know, is this a Jeremy Hefner-inspired move? To, is is he behind this? You know, to me, it seems to undercut that. But maybe that's part of what he wanted. You know, so uh, we'll see where the Mets go. The Mets have a lot of issues. You know, I was on, on that bandwagon early, but the more I watched that team, the more I didn't like certain things. And and it, it all came out. They're not They're not built for the postseason. And if anything, we've seen, same as the Yankees, they're like a mini Yankees. The Yankees aren't built for the postseason, and we see it every year. And now, to me, the Mets are not built for the postseason uh, because some of the hitting slumps they went into, some of the pitching slumps, obviously the big boys 
Scherzer and DeGrom, and, and they, they do. I will say this, though. They do have a great closer in Diaz. He did, he did a wonderful job, great guy, and uh, at least they got that part of the problem solved. And, you know, it's funny, a couple things on that, Kevin. You've been covering baseball for f- over 40 years, 45 years. Have you ever seen someone like Diaz go from one end to the other, start out so bad, and all the, you know, the media politics with Kelnick and coming here and essentially blowing, not essentially blowing the 2019 season, and, and that's why the Mets didn't make the postseason. I don't think I've seen someone swing the other way. I, that was the first thing that came to mind when I saw him sign that contract. I was happy for him. And, uh, you know, that's a story that you very rarely see in New York, in any New York sport. Well, I'm going to take you way back, way, way back. Uh, Lyndon McDaniel with the Yankees, way back when. I was a younger man by the, at that time. But he would have up and down years, you know. They got him for nothing. He had an unbelievable year as a, as a reliever. And that's, that's kind of like what relievers do. You know, they do bounce. They go up, they go down. Uh, um I do think he's a little bit more sustainable because, um, you know, I think he, I, I think what happened with him was he unlocked some things mechanically where he really got on top of the baseball and, um, you know, but the, the hitters will make adjustments to this Diaz and he's going to have to, you know, he's going to have to make another adjustment, but he, um, you know, it, it is amazing how he went from, you know, basically from the, the bottom, you know, from, from, from the truly from the outhouse to the penthouse. And uh, uh, he, he's a great uh, one little story. Uh, a few years ago when I was with the Mets spring training, I was, you know, the Chick-fil-A, new Chick-fil-A opened up in Port St. Lucie. It was uh, a highlight in Port St. Lucie because that's Port St. Lucie. You know, not a lot to do there. And um, I was waiting in line, and it's a double line, so I happened to be alongside him. And, and um, he got the biggest box of, of of filet nuggets or whatever they call them, Chick-fil-A, I've ever seen. I've ever seen. It was huge. It was monstrous. So I, the next day I saw him, and it was a, some kind of, you know, that's when they were really stabilizing the press conferences. You weren't getting access where you really wanted to go. So it was his day to come in for a press conference, and, you know, all the writers are asking him this and that, blah, blah, blah. So I go, hey, what the hell were you doing ordering such a big box of Chick-fil-A nuggets, you know? And he started laughing, and and uh, again, that's that's what I do. I have fun with the players. I relate to them, and that's how you get real information down the road. You, you have some fun here and there with them. And, and he told me, he said, you know, my son loves those. So I had to get the biggest box they had. And uh, so, you know, so in a way, it gives you some indication of, of who he is as a person. You know, your father out there getting something for his son, kind of nice to see. Not just your baseball guy, uh, you know, there's more to him. So I'm really happy for Diaz. Other thing about Diaz I loved about him, I remember the game in L.A. where he blew it. Um, there were a bunch of games he blew, as you remember, back to that, that season. And uh, you know what, though, Mike? He was always at his locker. And he, to me, that showed me a lot of courage, guts, and he, he and um, he never hid from the media, so um, so that's a good thing. And uh, but the Mets have bit, you know, they have big pitching problems. Scherzer's not getting younger, and, and you can say what you want about Scherzer. And Scherzer is his own. By the way, just so everybody understands, he's his own drive line. If you ever watch his workouts in the off season, he's got you know Vasquez, whatever it's called. He's got all these electronics set up. He's ready to rock and roll. He measures everything. So. I don't know if they'll find anything for him that'll make him better, but 
but they're going to have to find something to keep guys healthy too. They've had some injury issues, and um, it's the state of pitching today. I mean, uh, the uh, the other thing which I have to mention is you know the Mets kept them, the Mets hurt themselves at the trade deadline by not trading, not making trades that look to the postseason. They look they looked at trades that looked okay, you know. But you know, are you getting better, real, really better? You know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's so important to make those trades that make you really better. And um, and the Mets didn't do it, so uh, I'm not as high on the Mets as I was last year going into the spring training because I saw what happened. And also, you know, Buck Buck is Buck, and he's done a great job, and he's brought baseball back to them, and he's got some good coaches, guys I like. But you know, he you can tell from what Dusty was fighting. You know, Dusty said, he said to friends, Mike, he, he told him, he said, everything's an argument with the analytical guys. Yeah. Everything's a debate. So um, I'm sure Buck had to fight the same battles. Yep. And I'll tell you what, here's where um, this is going to be basically uh, Billy Epler's Waterloo. Seven of the top 10 prospects are offensive players. They held on to all their top prospects. Most of, if not all, their pitchers are two years away of any significance. You're betting everything here on driveline. And I went back. Now, Jagers and this driveline culture was part of the Phillies before Dave Dombrowski took over. And you've written about Dombrowski. And he got rid of, yeah. And he got rid of all of them. And the thing that bothers me is that feedback was handed down. It was 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 written by Matt Geld over at uh, Philadelphia. Rarely traveled up. It's almost like a cult. That's a good writer. It's a, you know, yeah. it's almost like a cult. And what bothers me is that all these guys still work for driveline. <laughs> They still work for Driveline while they work for the team. I've not heard good things. Kyle Body was not uh, was was fired or parted ways, whatever you want to call it, from Cincinnati. Haven't heard good things there. I'm not against new ideas. I guess, and I've and, I, and again, I'm not a coach like you are, but I've seen coaches say, "Hey, velocity or weight based training isn't bad. It's not for every body type, especially if you're wiry." Uh, what I don't like is putting one size fits all. Scott Boris said it this week. I don't know if you saw the quote where he's starting to show concerns that his players are being forced into a basically a round peg in a square hole because, hey, the analytics department says this is the perfect player. And they're not adjusting right. the training to the player. And and that's really where it is. This is not me being anti-driveline. But I look at, at Billy Epler doing this higher. He's putting – because Cohen will spend right now to keep this team competitive and championship level. But three years from now, when Scherzer's gone and maybe you said DeGrom's not coming back and guys get old – well, you need some minor league system to, to start producing. And if driveline undoes a lot of the pitching, you can't sign five starters. It's too expensive. Even the richest owner can't sign five starters. So this is kind of his waterloo. This is going to be where the development goes, at least from the pitching perspective. Absolutely. No, you know, um, there's got to be more than Rapsodo. There's got to be more than uh, numbers. I got concerned... And again, you know, Mike, I created a whole new beat at the at the uh, post when I was there. I would go down to spring training early because my attitude was spring training starts when the players get there, not when they tell us to come. And the other writers would wait. I'd, be, I'd get down there early and get all the stories early. But my, my antenna started going up. And again, I know baseball. I played baseball through college. I've been around it forever. Lucky enough to cover guys like Tony Gwynn for, you know, talk hitting with Tony Gwynn for 10 years pitching coach then with Pat Dobson, you know, all these guys through the years, all the Yankees through the years. So I've learned a lot about the game. And I was getting concerned when I started seeing them measuring like the length. They had like two nerds out there measuring the length of this stride and that stride. 
They were more into the technicalities of the numbers than the mechanics of the pitching, if that makes any sense. Sure. And they were all they, they were all chasing numbers. You can't chase numbers, especially when you're trying to teach. You it's a feel too. That's another thing. You watch the Astro series, and you could tell every one of those pitchers had a feel for pitching. In other words, they knew what they were doing. They were setting these guys up perfectly. And uh, and the Phillies fell into the trap. Uh, they could have done some things, but they didn't. And, and and pitching is a feel. It's not just numbers. And, you know, it's not just running to the iPad and looking at something. It's a feel for pitching, the mechanics of it. And I think that's getting away from so many teams. And it's so obvious this is the way you need to attack. And that's why it's going to be fascinating. Imagine – I'm just throwing this out there, but – Imagine if the Rangers signed Verlander and DeGrom. Hmm. Boom. That, that's the, that, to, and they bring Bochy in. And both, no one runs a bullpen like Bochy. And uh, you got to have the horses, of course, but he, he'll find a way. Uh, and I said three years ago, I said DeGrom was not coming back, and everybody thought I was crazy. I, I was the one who said he's, he's going to opt out, and everybody thought I was crazy. You know? But again, I don't. I don't listen to the agents. I know what I know. And I know that it's lifestyle. It's this, it's that. And I, I sense a frustration with DeGrom, with the Mets. Now, Cone may pay him so much that he won't want to leave. That's still a possibility. But I sense a frustration with DeGrom just in his Mets situation, um, whether it's a little bit of the media, whether it's a little bit of New York City for a Florida kid. It could be a lot of things, but I—that's I, why I've been saying I thought the Braves—I thought the Braves blew her. I can't believe the Braves um, gave Charlie Morton twenty million dollars this year and did it early, which kind of in my—I thought I thought for sure Degrom was going to go to the Braves. I thought uh, Alex Anthopoulos would make that move. It was a no-brainer, but maybe they figured they had to sign Morton, and maybe they could still sign more, but you know. They're they're owned by you know they're owned by a corporation, so it's a question who much how much money they spend. But to me, I still think it's a possibility. But I think Degrom to the Braves would have been the perfect fit for him for the kid from Deland, Florida, uh, who grew up a, a Braves fan. So, so it's going to be uh, it's it's going to be interesting because um, the Mets kind of whetted the appetite of their fans, and their their fans are great. Don't get me wrong, but they're a little gullible. You know, they're a little gullible, and, uh, like all fans. And uh, they need to be on their game a little bit more. Don't take everything the Mets say as gospel. Would you, if you were the Mets, and let's say DeGrom does sign elsewhere, would you pivot towards a Verlander, a Carlos Rodon? Would you reinvest that money maybe in a little bit more of an offensive team? I mean, from what it, from what they've been built, they've been built on the two big starting pitchers, a contact, work-to-count offense, and an elite closer. They're not star-studded up and down the offensive uh, lineup. Yeah, they got Alonzo, they got McNeil, but they've got really good players up and down the lineup. How would you pivot if Kevin Kernan was the GM, GM of the Mets and DeGrom leaves? Is it for Lander? Is it rebuilding the team completely from what really Billy Epler's indicated his desire, which was a big ace, big one-two, big bullpen guy they have, and a, a lineup that works the count and, and grinds the pitcher in the ground, similar to the late 90s Yankees? Yeah, you got to go pitching, no matter what it is. I mean, they need that big bat. You hit it, you know that that's for sure. You know, the bat they need is Aaron Judge, to be quite frank. Um, you know that 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 would be a nice little addition. 
and he would give them that emotional lift, that leadership that they needed. That's what's going to be, again, another great story. And, I, and I've been saying this for a long time, you know, the Mets, the Yankees blew their chance with Judge years ago. They had time after time after time to sign him. They didn't do it. That's got to be, that's stuck in a craw. I don't care what you say. That's got to be bothering him to a certain degree. Very interesting, too. Who's his best friend? And I, I'm trying, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to make the Yankee thing, but I just want to make this clear. You watch five minutes of the game and you see that, uh, you know, Rizzo's his best friend along with Stanton. Well, Rizzo opts out, too. So all of a sudden, wow, isn't that interesting? Maybe Rizzo's going to go somewhere with Judge. You know, that would, that's not out of question. If I'm the Giants, I, I turn around and and, um, and and sign them both. And all, all of a sudden, you got your first baseman, and then you got Judge, and you got leadership. So so there's a real opportunity here for the Mets with the way the Yankees are going. They need to get a big bat. But they they got to pivot and get pitching first off. You got to have the pitching. They have all right now. The Mets have a lot of good guys, but not a lot of great guys. And um, uh, they need a you know Verlander. I couple things with Verlander. I don't know his relationship with Scherzer. If he has a strong relationship with Scherzer, maybe maybe that could be a selling point. It's almost like the NBA days of LeBron picking his teammates. Um, the other thing with him is. To me, I see I see the Rangers as more of a fit with Scherzer. I mean, with Verlander, simply because uh, then he stays in the American League, he stays in Texas. It, it just makes life a lot easier. I don't know if he wants that that um, if he wants to live that New York lifestyle. But if they can get Verlander, go for it. I, I, I sense there's a parting of the ways with Degrom from both sides right now. I think both sides are a little bit. They they, they say they want Degrom, but I. In my, in my heart of hearts, I don't feel it. I don't see it, and I could be wrong. But uh, you got to get rolled on. You got to get somebody. You got to go get pitching. I mean, it's all about pitching, and that's the beauty in the brains of Dusty Baker and and the and the uh, Astros. What they did, they signed a lot of these international guys. And and uh, I remember him talking about Framber Valdez that first day, twenty twenty. You know what his plans were for him. So this has been. This has been a work in progress for three years with somebody's, uh, you know, and he also, the nerd wanted to trade, Glick wanted to trade um, Urquidy for Wilson Contreras, and Dusty vetoed that and, with, with the owner because he didn't want the owner, he didn't want he, he didn't want to lose pitching and also have a, a guy who's a free agent catcher fighting for more time, wanting more time, when he already had the perfect leadership. Here's another thing with the Mets guy to consider. He had the perfect. There's no better catcher to me right now in baseball from a, from controlling a pitching staff than Martin Maldonado. Man, if you watch five minutes of the World Series, you saw this guy's got them guy. They listen to him. He's the boss, and he gets in their face when they they need to get people in their face. So that's a part of the equation too, where the Mets blew it. The Mets a couple of years ago is different different group, of course, but. No, when JT Realmuco was a free agent, they had to sign him. That that was a huge mistake. It's still haunting them to this day. So they need to clean up catching, and they need to clean up uh, getting more pitching. That's that's a that's a tough challenge, and the Phillies are only going to get better. Dombrowski, I've been a Dombrowski fan since you know when he was way back when with the Marlins, you know '97, I think it was. Um, he, he's an interesting dude. He's uh, he, he he's kind of. You, your first take is that he's a little uh, snobbish, you know, that comes from money type personality. 
But then when you talk to him, you find he's on top of everything. He really digs his scouts. You know, Gary Hughes, who was a good friend of mine, so he, you know, he passed away a few years ago. He loved everything about Dombrowski. Dombrowski really relied on his scouts. So, so there's a new, you know, it's not just the Braves now. There's a new kid in town with these Phillies. They're only going to get better. Uh, so, so that's a part of the Mets hurdle too. And I think we're all starting to see that it's not just about having the most money, like Steve Cohen. Plus, you can't tell me, Mike, that that Steve Cohen didn't get this ownership without a little caveat of, okay, I'm not going to blow up, I'm not blowing up the, uh, you know, the, the um, contract system of baseball by just signing everybody for all this money. You know, he he made some deals along the way, including the fact that uh, you know how Steinbrenner pushed for him, so. There's no way he's going to go after Judge because of that relationship, in my mind, uh, unless something else happens where the Yankees go after the Grom. So um, it's it's really interesting. Uh, the Mets have a lot of work ahead of them. That's all I can say. A couple of things before we wrap up here. The game will be changing next year. You're going to have bigger bases. Uh, you're going to have uh, yeah. some restrictions on pickoffs. They're trying to, you know, obviously the pitch clock, which, I, and I've spoken to someone in the minor leagues that works in the minor leagues, that good friend of mine who's a traditionalist, and he said it, it did make the games move quicker and it becomes somewhat backdrop once they get used to it. You're basically legislating what they should do. How you th- how do you think that's going to change how teams approach? I mean, I don't think you're going to have a remake of the 1980s Cardinals, but you may have a guy like Trey Turner become more valuable. Does Lindor now, because you can't shift, become more valuable? Uh, you know, does a Jeff McNeil become an even bigger threat because now you don't have to worry about those ground balls to the outfield and what have you, you know, and, and on and on and on and on. As you look at some of the left-handed batters, Schwarber, Josh Bell, guys that, you know, were doing a lot of four threes under the shift. What what are your thoughts on how the new rules will impact not only how teams construct themselves, but the game in 2023? Well, let's start small. First off, I think it's going to hurt Jeff McNeil. Jeff, uh, and more power to him, he did a great job of hitting, you know, we we really kill her, hitting them where they weren't, you know, hitting them where they ain't. He, he saw where teams, you know, Tony and I used to talk about this all the time. When Tony Gwynn got into the batter's box, he looked, first thing he did was, he, you know, Tony had that great sense of humor. He says, Kevin, first thing I do, I look, I look at the grass. Where's the most green grass? And that's what he, that's what he has in the back of his mind of where to shoot the ball if he has the pitch that he can shoot it there. So McNeil was brilliant at that this year. Uh, it played right into his hands. Um, I think he'll. I think he'll. He won't get as many of those cheaper hits that he got, but he's still going to be a weapon. But guys that can hit can hit. So the other parts of the shift, pitch clock. I you know I go to a lot of games in Florida still here and there. And I was on the pitch clock early on. Um, I don't mind the pitch clock, but you're really going to see it's really going to hurt some pitchers who do some heavy duty thinking in between pitches and stuff like that. So it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to rough them up. It's going to really hurt the hitters. And Chris Bassett's going to struggle a hitter. lot. Chris Bassett will struggle yeah, a lot they, with that. Yeah. The, the hitters are all into their meditations. They have the, every, every friggin' organization has a, has a mental skills coach at every level now. And they, they, after every pitch, they, they refocus, they look at the bat, they do this, they do all this, you know, all this Zen stuff. So just getting in there and hit. Um, so it's going to really hurt the, I think it's going to be more of a detriment to the hitters. The bigger bases are ridiculous. The throws over to first base are ridiculous. So you got you got to get guys who can run now and force them into that. The, the legislating where you play your defenders. Are you, is this, is this, 
this is, uh, you know, this is no longer the capitalist free society of baseball. You do what you want. Now we're in a socialism baseball here. And, um, and, um, you know, you got to have your fielders, you know, they can't have their feet on the grass. So I said it and I will see if it comes true. And I'm usually, you know, usually pretty, pretty good on my predictions and general predictions. At some point, you're going to have some situations where you're going to have a man in motion infielder where he's going to be running towards a spot before the ball is pitched so he doesn't break the new rule, but then is able to get somewhere in between, you know, as the ball is traveling. It's going to be like a, it's going to look like Canadian football with two guys in motion. <laughs> and um, uh, so, so I think, yeah, I'm against all the rules. I'm basically against anything that Manfred does. I keep it simple. Anything he does destroys the game and to some degree, including, of course, what he did with the um, the fake runner. And now we get 18-inning. Uh, they're not classics, by the way. 18-inning postseason games where everybody's swinging from their ass for a home run, uh, like we saw this past year, because nobody can create a run. They don't know how to bunt. They don't even have. They don't even understand the concept of bunting anymore, and they never do it anymore in the minors. So the game is the game. The game that that people love for a hundred years has changed so much that it's, it's hard to love now. It's, you know, you have your exciting moments here and there, but you need to bring the action back in the game. And in some ways not having this shift does that, but it does it in a way where it's a gun to the head as opposed to let's be smarter than these guys and do it this way. While I have you, as we wrap up here, uh, I'd be remiss that, you know, I always love talking hall of fame and, the 2023 Contemporary Baseball Era ballot came out. No Keith Hernandez, but you have Albert Bell, Barry Bonds, Clemens, Mattingly, McGriff, Dale Murphy. Again, that conversation that's been had many times. Rafael Palmeiro, that's an interesting one. And Kurt Schilling. The steroids guys are up there uh, again right away. And then you have a few interesting cases with Mattingly, McGriff. And I'm curious, um, if you were on that committee, I don't know if you thought about it, who would Kevin Kernan vote for? Who do you believe is a Hall of Famer? Well, you can only vote for three, the way the committee's set up. So that kind of keeps limits it, and and they got to get seventy five percent of the vote. And it depends. It all depends, Mike. Who you'll know who gets in by how they staff the committee. Mm. In other words, the Tony Lewis year when all of a sudden Howell Baines gets in, who was on that committee? Lewis and a bunch of Reinsdorf guys, right? You know, basically. So you knew you knew that was that's how that happened. Um, so. It all depends. I think the guys who put the names on the committee did a pretty good job. I would have had Keith Hernandez on there myself. That's me. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a thankless job, and, you know, they're all volunteers for that. But it, whoever gets on that committee, you'll know immediately. In other words, if they're friendly to Bonds, so let me let me take uh, – let me use my expertise here. The, the year that the uh, All-Star game was in um, San Francisco, I'm not good with years. It might have been 2006. You know, my job, you know, I I stayed for both American League All-Stars and National League All-Stars. And Barry Barry had the uh, podium that was as soon as you walk in. Uh, it was almost like Barry's All-Star game. And with every single All-Star from both leagues walked up to him and congratulated him and went out of their way to kiss his ring. That So that tells you a lot there. That era of player that played with Barry has no problems with Barry. Uh, my final years of voting uh, when he was on the on the, on the uh, regular thing, I would vote for him. Uh, I, I gave up. I said, "Why am I on the wall? Am I the only guy on the wall?" You know, you know, it's kind of like uh, you know, a few good men type thing. I got, I'm, so I said, "You know what, Clemens, 
Barry, put him in. And uh, so if I had to vote for three, if I was on that committee, I'd probably go, I'd take the obvious ones because, I mean, you you know, even even though I'm not, a, I, I hate what the steroids guys did and I hate that whole era. Uh, but you know what? It, it wasn't there. Who's ever voting? It wasn't your job. That was baseball's job to, to control that. And he didn't. Plus, you can make the argument. There's some people think that's just four, at least four steroid guys in the Hall of Fame right now. So, you know, it's already, you know, the cow's out of the barn. So I would vote Bonds, Clemens, McGriff. Those would be the three. Maybe Murphy, but I could get my, you know, in a debate. If the debate's going on, I could maybe. I think McGriff has been screwed. He did it right in that era. Great guy, um, a winner, um, upstanding individual. Uh, so McGriff, I, I love Fred McGriff, and I would I would vote him. But there's so many guys from that era that I think should be in, to be quite frank. I mean, I think, you know, Sheffield, I vote for Sheffield all the time. Sure. I always go by, it's, it's real simple, Mike. When I covered teams, I saw who the other team's pitchers were afraid of and who, who they had the most respect for. And without a doubt in that era, Gary Sheffield was near the top of the list. When he was in his prime, he was at the top of the list. So yeah, all of a sudden, you, you don't get worse when your career ends, you know? <laughs> you That's know? true. So, so the problem is we got so many nerds voting that they just look at numbers and they don't look at impact and uh, and they don't look at what how they were pitched too. Do you think Gary Sheffield saw as many good pitches as some other guys? No, no. they worked them hard. They worked no. them hard. And he hit over five hundred home runs. I know that people, the home runs are like three pointers now. Everybody hits them, but yeah. um, there's still some cachet. I mean, he was a feared hitter, uh, and his career got off feared. to a rough start too. Very rough start. Uh, well, he, he had to mature. He had to mature. I had him in San Diego, don't, don't forget. And he started maturing in San Diego. And you know why he matured? Who was his teammate? Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff did a lot for Gary Sheffield. And that's part of the equation, too, getting me circling back to McGriff. And, again, we talk about all this stuff on my podcast, Coaching Kernan Podcast. By the way, we've it's a network now, so we actually have pitching former pitching coaches doing podcasts. We have some incredible podcasts all under the umbrella coaching current real baseball knowledge and it's called real voices of the game is one of the ones i do plus a panel so you know we we talk about this stuff all the time and and we we've actually other former players and current players i've heard are listening to the podcast now because they get so much information out of it legit information so my answer to your question is i i do would love to see murphy i'm, I'm thinking i'm thinking it's going to be again it depends on the, the who's on that committee they could also go mcgriff murphy and leave and 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 um and leave bonds and clemens out you know that, that could be a way to go too they may make them they may make them keep them in purgatory so i just came back from church and we had a nice breakfast uh, church breakfast afterwards so i'm thinking church wise right now <laughs> uh th- these uh these these players and they were hall of fame itself and the committee uh uh maybe maybe keeping these guys in purgatory for a few more years. And uh, one other quick story, I won't mention the player, but I remember a Hall of Fame player, when he saw me one time, he said, how could you vote for those two guys? And this was a a pretty high Hall of Fame player, and we got into a little discussion about it, and I basically said what I said. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's it's, it's, you can't argue with – when we're looking at numbers – and then the other thing, Mike, let me – let me get my shots in here, too. The P. Rose thing, I'm over it, okay? P. Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. He's the hits leader. You know, I bad guy, we know that, you know. 
Uh, he was a manager. I remember when I covered the Padres, he used to always pump me for information about the Padres. I just thought he was an interested manager at that point when he was the res manager. But he's thinking about making a bet, you know? <laughs> so he's really going for info. So, so, but, you know, you got all these friggin' betting companies everywhere in baseball now. Put P. Rose in the Hall of Fame. Just put it on their plaque. Look, it's possible, they were, plaque, you know? it's possible they had a Ponzi scheme on the umpire's uniforms with FTX. You never know. So I've been saying that. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I've been, I, I took a picture last night of the Arizona Fall League. There's the umpire with the FTX, and I posted yeah. on my Twitter account, uh, AMBS yeah. underscore Kernan. And, and, and what's going on here? FTX everywhere. I, between, I know, and there's so F- much outrage in the game today. You know, you can't uh, make a wrong left or right turn without the, the mob going after you, but nobody's saying anything. I'm no. looking at it, so Coach and Kernan is the podcast, uh, obviously part of the network, Ball 9. Anything coming up this week? Let the listeners know the next uh, week or two as we head into Thanksgiving. What are some of the things you'll be focused on with uh, both your podcast and your writing? Well, first of all, go to myball9.com today. You're, you're going to have a great uh, you're going to have a great read about the whole teams that know how to do it right, like the Astros. And I don't want to hear more garbage about the Astros in two seven two thousand seven. I'm over that. Yankee fans get over it. You've had plenty of chances for revenge, and you got your nose rubbed in it every time. All right. So that's life. So that's a really strong column. All my columns are strong. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little pat myself on the back, but I put. I don't have to do this, Mike, anymore. I don't have to do this. I do it because I love baseball, and I got honest people. Now, Wednesday, I'm going to do something. Wednesday for Thursday, I'm doing something different. I tracked down a former player from who played in Key West Padres in 1969 in Key West, Florida, when it was a whole different world. His memories of playing, it's, it's, and his life, what he did later on with his life. His name is Marvin Scherzer, and uh, a, a really interesting guy. He now does, uh, he, he's, a, he's a musician as well now, and he does stuff for hospice and things like that. So uh, not only do I crush the people who need to get crushed, I'm from the old school journalism where I go after the powerful. Sure. You know, I don't kiss their butt, sure. right? You're not going to read anything. Uh, you're not going to read about anything good in there about FTX or you know uh, another Pfizer commercial. Are we going to see another Pfizer commercial? Oh, forget about Turn it. Turn on any sports now. Oh my God! You know, the guys dancing around because uh, they got a shot in their arm. Uh, it's, it's booster number five. So so again, uh, and but I also mix it up every time. Every once in a while, have a, a human interest story that's really good. So same thing with, with if you go to the you know. Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from, all those podcasts that are listed below. I do it with a guy named Dave D'Agostino, former player. Um, he was a college basketball and baseball coach, so he really knows his stuff. I do it with a guy named Will George, a scout for 35 years in the game. Uh, he he has Mark Wiley, a pitching coach for many years. So so uh, Joe Fasaro is kind of like our, our South Florida guy who does a lot of scouting stuff. Great reporter who's at MLB many years. Um, so it's really the whole list is there, right? you know. And, and this week we'll, we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll address some of the things we talked about today. Uh, but you know it's always something new, something interesting. It's not the same old stuff. It's, and my writing at Ball Nine is long form. Matter of fact, the Bull Nine, I couldn't go because I'm going to Wyoming this week with a bunch of scouts and baseball people. 
But uh, the New York State Hall of Fame had their inductions uh, yesterday, and, and some of my boys were up there in, in uh, Troy, New York, with uh, Louis Tiant and things like that. And I think a couple of former Yankees, Bucky got in, and some other people. And I got in last year, which was a nice thing. You're, so, you're a Hall uh, of Famer, know, we'll, and, we'll and Barry Bonds is not. You're a Hall of Famer, and Barry Bonds right now is not. So that's a, a testament to the work. Well, a smaller Hall of Fame. I'm not yeah. in the, you know... <laughs> I don't have enough. Uh, I'm not playing the political game for the, where the writers, uh, a lot of writers would vote for me. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's it's always uh, a pleasure talking to you. You were generous at your time on a Sunday. Be well. Keep up the good work. Keep preaching the gospel of baseball, and uh, have a great holiday season, Kevin. And let's do this again. All right, my friend. Anytime, Mike. All Take right. care. Have a good night, Kevin. Take care. Bye bye. And that's Kevin Kernan. You guys know him. No filter. America's most beloved sports writer at AMBS underscore Kernan on Twitter, Ball9, coaching Kernan, uh, where you get all your podcasts. All right, let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. On the Talking Mets podcast, we like to discuss the latest baseball innovation, like when national baseball writer and author Rob Nyer discussed the future of starting pitching. It turns out, I think teams are realizing or at least believing, I think they're right, but I could be wrong, um, is that it doesn't make any sense to shove pitchers into this box, starting pitcher, box that, that, that requires the pitcher to give you five or six or ideally seven or eight innings. Very few teams have five guys like that who, who can give you those innings and be good. And I think that we're only going to see more and more of that. I will be surprised and I'll be. I'm happy to be surprised, but I'll be surprised if if uh, if bullpenning doesn't explode. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. I always love talking to Kevin Kernan. You always get a good story. French fries or what? Chicken? No, not French fries. Chick Fil A and Edwin Diaz. I mean, where else would you get that? Where else would you know what Edwin Diaz is buying on? I guess his day off or sometime in between getting to the ballpark and spring training and what have you, than the Talking Mets podcast. Look, uh, you know, I didn't even mention. I was thinking about this during the break after uh, you know Kevin and I had talked. You know, talking about player development. If you don't. If you're not sold yet on what I'm talking about, how important this hire is for the New York Mets from a pitching perspective. It really is. Really important. This is a critical hire that Billy Epler has done with Eric Jagers. Relief pitching is already coming off the board at a high rate. Uh, Rafael Montero got over $10 million a year. Suarez from the Padres, what did he get? $10 million a year. Robert Suarez... I got to think Adam Adovino is going to get a, a, at least two two years, $20 million contract, maybe three. More, probably more two because of his age, maybe three. Seth Lugo, it doesn't sound like the Mets are interested in. I, you know, I think it, Mets could probably get better value out of an arm somewhere along the way than Lugo. Probably will get a decent contract in that neighborhood. You know, maybe two years, $15 million, you know, eight, $9 million a year, something like that. It's getting expensive, and the fact that the Mets have for years not produced any high-leverage arms out of that bullpen is a problem. 
So as I'm looking at the free agent, the early free agent board come up, that's something that I noticed. Uh, as far as the Hall of Fame on the way out here, um, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the Hall of Fame. You know, you guys heard what Kevin had to say. You guys heard a lot of what Kevin had to say about DeGrom and about um, his concerns with the modern game and and how they assess and develop players, especially pitchers. But I thought it was interesting on the way out, uh, Kevin's thoughts on the contemporary Hall of Fame ballot. Am I disappointed that Keith Hernandez is not on it? Yes. Um, I think maybe because this was the year of Keith, because he had his his day at City Field. There's been so much made of Keith. You know, even had, I think they had a, a 1982 Cardinals celebration. Keith has been in the spotlight for his playing career quite a bit over the last 12 months, even the last couple of years. He came out of a book a couple of years ago. I would think that maybe on the next round of the contemporary ballot, Keith might be considered a little bit more seriously because I think this is also about marketing and whatnot. But when you look at the ballot, which consists of Albert Bell, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Don Mattingly, Fred McGriff, Dale Murphy, Rafael Palmeiro, and Kurt Schilling, uh, you know, quite honestly, I-, I believe you probably have five Hall of Famers there. You have Bell, Bonds, Clemens is three, Schilling and Palmero four and five. Now, all those guys come from the era I grew up in, and I'll get deeper into that when they announce the ballot in December. I don't want to talk too much about that now. But if you had to ask me to vote for three, out of, the, out of this group, I can only get three, like Kevin said. Bonds and Clemens is a no-brainer. I mean, they're Hall of Famers. I don't care if you take them. I've done the math. We've, you know, If you listen to my show at all the last few years, go back to January, listen to my Hall of Fame show. I'll get in depth about them. They're Hall of Famers. But, you know, Albert Bell... Uh, you know, real quick here on the way out, Albert Bell was an elite offensive player. Now, it was a real pain in the you-know-what when it came down to it. But here's a guy. Uh, if you go back to 1993, right before he signed his contract with the Chicago White Sox, that little period of time when the Indians were emerging and becoming the best team in baseball, even though they didn't win a championship, they lost to the Braves, he had a 166 OPS plus. He averaged 43 home runs, 126 RBIs, basically one-to-one walks to strikeouts, an on-base of 40%, slugging over 600. Uh, if it wasn't for a hip injury, uh, he probably would have played you know, into his late 30s. You know, you want to add his first couple of years of his White Sox. The or- you know, he hurt his hip when he, when he got to the Orioles. Uh, you know, here's a guy that had an OPS plus of 158 over a real one, two, three, four, five, six-year period. And quite honestly, in a 12-year career, you know, he did average, you know, for his 12-year career, uh, you know, if you just take those, you know, just a basic average, you average 40 home runs and 130 RBIs every year. And I don't care if you're steroids era or, you know, dead ball era, 80s, 90s, 70s, uh, that's impressive. So those are the three that I would pick. I'll get deeper into that when the ballot comes out at the winter meetings. Uh, You know, we'll probably do something along those lines, but... Those would be my three picks on that ballot. Bonds, Clemens, Bell. I think Palmero and Schilling are Hall of Famers. I've been nay on the McGriff and the Mattingly, um, and I know that bothers some and has nothing to do. Look, I've warmed up on Keith Hernandez, and I gave you guys reasons why he's probably a Hall of Famer when we were talking about him in the summer when his number was retired by the Mets. So, um, you know, that's where I'm at at that. But Good stuff from Kevin Kernan. I think there's a, a lot of little things that he threw out there. Not great news on DeGrom. You know, not as uh, bullish on the Mets as maybe he was earlier in the year. But, um, you know, the Mets have a lot of work to do, and they just started with Edwin Diaz, and we'll see. You know, but 
as I said, the theme of the show is driveline good for the Mets. That's really the theme for the show. Well, it better be because Eric Jagers is coming in. He's the director of pitching development, and his foundation is driveline. So even if driveline is not the end-all, be-all for Eric Jagers, it's going to play a significant role in whether the Mets can develop some of their young talent and eventually have that supplement these veterans in the rotation that are going to get old. Scherzer's going to get old. If Bassett comes back, he's going to get old. At some point, the next generation has to come in. Same if DeGrom comes back. He's not going to pitch forever. So it'll be interesting to see nonetheless. And you know what? Maybe some philosophies could help David Peterson and Tyler McGill, but there is definitely a correlation between driveline and weight-based velocity training and arm injuries. There's no denying that. Everybody's body's different. And uh, hopefully the Mets use common sense with this hire and with whatever philosophy they're going to implement when it comes to developing their pitchers. All right, that's it. Hope everybody enjoyed today's edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at at Mike Silver Media. Got tongue tied on that one. And the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with Talking Mets Podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.